To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Oh, the jungle VIP I've reached the top and had to stop And that's what's bothering me Welcome to this happy podcast Welcome Hello, you're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we're your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod or send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Kyle. We are on episode 101, the Dalmatian episode. <laughs> My favorite episode, 101. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this one and this, and this bracket because, you know, we, we just got done watching so many sing-alongs for, yeah. for the last bracket. Yeah. Um, and now we're heading back into the parks, which is perfect timing because not only did you just go to the parks, but I just got back from the parks and we're going to talk all about that. Uh, and our our bracket this time around for these next two episodes is the best 1955 Disneyland attraction. So we're going all the way back to opening day. We're going to talk about 16 attractions. Uh, some of them still around. Some of them have been altered a little bit and some of them are just completely gone. And in order to help us find out which best attraction came out of 1955 is the Disneyland Resort Aficionado. Is Tess. Tess, welcome back to the podcast. I don't know why you guys keep inviting me back, but I'm happy to be here for a fourth time. So there's oh that. Four hey, times. Hang the banner. Wow. Hang the banner. Powerhouse. Powerhouse, Tess. Um, uh, and- yeah, it's it's super interesting to like have just gone to the parks and experienced <laughs> some of the newest offerings. And then now like talk about some of the original offerings that were there and kind of maybe compare them in ways. Yeah, totally. And and Tess, you're taking off in a couple of days uh, after this part one release um, to Disneyland. So you're also getting, I guess, into the groove of getting back through those gates while we're talking about these weird 1955 attractions, some of them anyways. Um, of, of the 1955 opening day ones, uh, is there one that holds a special place in your heart uh, maybe it's not like considered the best, but one that you really, really enjoy and have to go on every time you're at the parks. Um, yes and no. I mean, basically any attraction that really lets you see the sights and sounds of the parks. So anything, you know, like the railroad or um, Casey Jr., those types of rides where you really get a view of the parks. Um, but for for this uh, part one of the bracket, I'm not really rooting for any one um, <laughs> attraction. I have I'm representing Dumbo with my ears. I'm representing the carousel with my earrings. Um, let's see on my mouse or on my spoonful of sugar mug. We've got Autopia right here on my Jared Mariama mug, and uh, the teacups. Um, my coasters are teacups and Jungle Cruise. So um, no favorites here. Um, I like them all. Well, before we hop into this bracket and all of the fun things that we have in store, uh, we got to talk a little spoonful of sugar. We see that Tess already has her mug ready to go. Chris, what have you got? I am on my continuing mission to drink (laughs) 
every alcohol in my apartment. <laughs> and so I'm starting off uh, with my sour beer, my Dewclaw uh, Sour Me Black Apple that I drank for our weirdest Disney Parks character costume. It's a it's a Monday, so I'm feeling a little bit sour myself. Um, <laughs> and so it's a nice drink to to end the work day and hopefully, you know, make the next one a little bit less painful. Uh, Kyle, what about you? I have, uh, so just getting back from our trip to Disneyland and therefore we didn't really have anything, uh, in the fridge when we got back because we didn't go grocery shopping before leaving. So luckily we had some, uh, lemon sparkling water that I threw some, uh, I threw a shot of vodka into. So I made my own little, little hard seltzer over here. Sipping on that for episode one. I think I have like one single beer left in the fridge that I'll save over for episode two. But this is refreshing. Uh, the bay's warm today. It's not quite as warm as the East Coast. And we just got through a, a bit of a heat wave up here. So I'm feeling good. This this is exactly the refreshing spoonful of sugar I needed. Tess, what do you have in your Disneyland mug? I am coming in hot with a Moscow mule, and I'm going to call it a Fantasyland mule since a lot of these attractions are in Fantasyland. Well, we're going to talk about some mules today. That is for <laughs> sure. <laughs> but before we start breaking down our 1955 original Disneyland attractions, uh, let's talk a little bit about our, our recent trip, Kyle. Yeah, uh, I've been I've been really like eager to talk to you and compare experiences. <laughs> and j it's been a long time since either of us were at the parks uh, Disneyland. I think my last Disneyland trip was with you in like uh, December 2017 or something. There was it was the victory lap of California screaming. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I hadn't been since June of 2019, I believe. Um, and I had a, a trip booked right before the pandemic began um, that we had to end up canceling. So this was a, a makeup Southwest Points trip, which was nice. Um, but yeah, it was it was really, really, really good to be back in the parks. And so for this first uh, segment, we're going to talk about things that we really, really liked and enjoyed about being back into the parks. We're going to talk a few positives from each of our trips, and they're going to be slightly different, I think, because... Chris went while the uh, COVID restrictions were still in place. So social distancing, masks on for everybody, all that stuff. And then I went literally the day after restrictions were lifted. So masks only for the unvaccinated, no more social distancing. Uh, rides were running at like 100% capacity. So we had two completely different uh, trips. But we're going to start out by talking about some of the positives because uh, we'll save some of the not so great things for part two of this bracket. Um, Chris, why don't you hit me with your three uh, right off the bat here? Well, my first is something that I hope you have on your list as well. I did it. I finally did it. I got to Galaxy's Edge and yep. I rode Rise of the Distance yep. and it was freaking awesome. Yes. <laughs> it was amazing. I I, I mean, I'm a pretty like moderate Star Wars fan. I, I'd say like six to seven out of ten. I like Star Wars, but I, I'm not a diehard. I, I didn't want to book a plane ticket and, and come out like for the opening or anything like that. Um, but I don't think you need to be a huge Star Wars fan to really appreciate the magnitude of this area. I mean, Insane. it is giant and it feels giant. It feels real. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's kind of the cool part about it. 
Rise was impressive. And and I had a neutered version of Rise where I didn't get the Ray hologram pre-show. Mm. And uh, I did not get to stop in the Stormtrooper room. And that was really sad because that was that was my favorite part of the attraction was that room. And they kind of like hurried us through there. So even in just like the few seconds I had in it, I was like, this is this is such an incredible flex by Disney to create this space. It's awesome. It's interesting because I had the Ray hologram pre-show, um, but they also hurried us through the uh, Stormtrooper room. It, it wasn't unless I, I just, you know, thought it went quickly. Um, we weren't there for all that long before we were like put into our, our cells. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that I realized how much how involved this ride was going to be with the cast members and how hard they were going to go in the paint in the rolls. Um, and it caught me off guard. This was like one of the first rides that we rode that morning. Um, and I couldn't follow directions and I kept getting yelled at. It was great. I was like, yeah, I'm actually, I'm being treated. <laughs> I'm being treated awfully by these, <laughs> by these uh, captors. I really was getting into it. And it's, it's like on the level of Indiana Jones oh, where yeah. I felt like I, you know, I was really there on that adventure. It was awesome, and it was cool to hear everyone's reaction coming off the attraction as well. It just seemed like it was an absolutely home run of a project by Disney. And uh, just one little additional Galaxy's Edge note: the restrooms in Galaxy's Edge are elite. <laughs> I cannot wait for when I can make it to the parks uh, more often, and we can do a best Disneyland restrooms bracket. But uh, those Galaxy's Edge ones are sick. And uh, my dad made a comment. He was like, look, if the Empire or the First Order or whatever has so much money, how come these bathrooms look so like run down and like grimy? And I was like, dad, this is Star Wars. This is the point of Star Wars. Like the Empire takes the resources from planets like Batu and makes it all terrible looking and like run down like this and like i could see his head kind of like expand a little bit when i said that and like that is one of the pros to doing like a a land based off an, of an ip like that is you get an entirely different perspective when you can be in it and be immersed by it um and i, I just thought it was 10 out of 10 like so good and also chewbacca walking around underneath the millennium falcon also maybe the highlight of my day so good <laughs> Um, and then that'll, I guess, segue into my next, uh, positive. And that was just like the little things, uh, the, the characters being out and about in the park. I, I absolutely love that. And Dude, I really hope they keep that. Get rid of meet and greets. I don't need to hug a single character ever again. I need them just to be like up in the buildings and hanging out and just like in, in the area like that would just added to the atmosphere so much. And I hope that they realized that. Uh, I got to see a little Rapunzel and Eugene banter session in the little uh, like fantasy fair courtyard area. Loved it. Oh my gosh. So uh, some other like little things that happened. Uh, I got to ride down Main Street in Walt's racist fire truck, which was <laughs> really fun. I mean, love, love a good transportation ride. So it was fun to, to like my first time going out Main Street USA in years was in this little authentic original fire car. Uh, it was really magical. It was Julia's first time at the original Disneyland park. So that was like her first experience. Um, 
and it, it was cool. It was unexpected. You know, we weren't planning on doing that. And the guy was like, hey, you guys want to ride? And we we're like, take us <laughs> to the castle. Sir. We also we also ran into uh, a family from our old summer camp days, the Shapiros. So, yeah. like, it's great to experience those little things in the park, you know, and like that's to me what makes going to parks worth it. It's not getting on all the rides and like experiencing all the total theming. It's like the little stuff that you really remember that, that are the standout moments in your day. Uh, my final pro was just returning to the Disneyland versions of so many of these attractions, particularly pirates like Splash Mountain, Big Thunder, Space Mountain, pirates. They all dwarf the Florida counterparts it is <laughs> astounding how much higher quality these attractions are it's so noticeable on pirates um and it just felt so good to be back in the original i had one of like the best rides on big thunder of my entire life on oh. this trip it was running so good <laughs> loved it the difference in quality is just like stupid coast to coast and and disney well disney world needs to get it together like asap because universal is coming and they're coming hard yep they just opened Velocicoaster and they're doing an entirely new fourth theme park in their resort. So uh, y'all y'all better prepare yourselves and, and like get on their level. Uh, so those are all of the pros for my trip. Uh, definitely have some cons that we can talk about next week, but I'm interested to hear about some of your pros, Kyle. Yeah. So before I had gone, you had given me some tips and tricks and you, you had specifically told me about how awful... Um, your food situation was and the food situation at the park was and dude it was awful and we'll, oh, we'll no. expand on it in in the next one but my food experience outside of mobile ordering which is bullshit was we had reservations every day so the food in our eating situation was phenomenal day one riverbell terrace which i've never been and it's like fine it like i, I think i had a, a pulled pork sandwich nina had some mac and cheese brisket mac and cheese uh and mm. it, it got the job done for for a midday meal and then that night carte circle lounge drinks in hand some tacos uh, i think i had salmon just mm, chef kiss fantastic the next day lunch blue bayou baby hurricanes on tap baby at the bayou <laughs> phenomenal and they were delicious. The Hurricanes, fair warning to everybody, including you, Tess, who's about to go. Very acidic, these Hurricanes. And like, I was like, I'm going to go for two. And I couldn't go for two because my stomach was going to start <laughs> doing some, some flips. But they're, they're very, very uh, acidic and they have a ton of rum in them. So they get you pretty going uh, right away. And then that night, Olga's Cantina, baby. And we, we walked out of Oga's Cantina and Nina was like, I think that's my favorite place in Disneyland. No <laughs> way. Like, wow. Yeah, man. It was like just, you know, you talk about how crazy immersive and, and real the Galaxy's Edge bathrooms were, which now I'm sad I didn't go while I was there. Um, the cantina is just next level. I mean, from the bartenders really playing the part uh, to the drinks were good. Uh, they don't have food there, which was my mistake. Should have done a little bit more research. But uh, the drinks were fantastic. And uh, you got you got your boy DJ Rex spinning the ones and twos in the back. You do this whole show when the when the playlist starts back over. Uh, it was just phenomenal. Uh, so our food situation and our food experience 
was like next level. That was the most efficient and beautiful thing about the chip. Uh, number two, wait times. We went on a Thursday and Friday, which meant that that Thursday ended up being a pretty light crowd day. Uh, they're still only operating at partial capacity when you to get people into the park, but the rides are operating at 100% now. So there's less people in the park riding rides at 100% capacity. So things are just moving. I mean, we didn't wait for a single ride for more than 25 minutes, I think, the entire trip. And a lot of that is because there were a lot less people in the parks because of these restrictions. And two, FastPass is gone, which hopefully and maybe they just keep that away because it's efficient for folks that can use it. And I mean, all three of us are very good with our FastPass planning for sure. Um, but I would definitely sacrifice that to only wait 20 minutes for the attractions I want to get on uh, throughout the day. And that doesn't go for some of the bigger ones like Radiator Springs towards the middle of the day hit 40 and 50 minutes. Uh, Guardians hit 40, 50 minutes. But everything on the Disneyland side stayed like under 30 minutes. Um, and it was phenomenal. So we got to go on basically everything and everything we wanted to. Which brings me to my third positive thing. On our final day, we started in DCA. DCA opened up at 8 a.m. And they just let us start riding rides. So like the park's supposed to open at 9. Gates opened at 8. They let everybody in. We got... Radiator Springs and Toy Story done before 9 a.m. That's crazy. I've never experienced that before. So we had a really, really, really great trip. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm excited to dive in more, uh, even if it's the negatives next episode, uh, because this was still just one of the better trips we had been on. So we had a ton of fun. And Tess, I am very excited for you uh, to finally get back because I think you're also going to have a blast. I am so excited. I, I I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I haven't decided what I'm going to tear up over first. Not that I can decide that, but I mean, when I was watching your stories, Kyle, I teared up a little bit at the ducklings. Not going to lie, the Disney oh, yeah. the Disney ducklings got me. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Springtime. There's a there's a ton of them. All right, so we'll talk more about these trips next episode. Uh, but let's get into our topic at hand, which is the best 1955 Disneyland attraction. And in order to find the 16 seats for this, we had a very specific demographic and it is one that I fit squarely into. It is the stunt Spider-Man Snapchatters. So Avengers Campus has the most insane shows that just take place at random times. And one of them, they launch a Spider-Man robot not even, it's not an M, it's just a robot. Into the air, higher than I've ever seen anything launched. And everyone has their phones out and they're sending these videos. And it was incredible. Um, Chris, were you able to witness it on your trip? I was not. Like, we did Web Slingers and then we did Mission Breakout. And while we were in the queue for Web Slingers, we saw Spidey like crawl up the side of the building and do a little like banter. But we were in the building by the time he was doing his launchy thing. And then we like headed towards Mission Breakout right when it was starting for the second time. So my parents got to see it, but uh, I did not. But on the other hand, I'm like, I've seen it so many times on people's Snapchats now. Like, I don't, 
<laughs> I mean, is it more impressive in person? I don't know. I mean, just the scale of how high they toss this robot is the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. So these Snapchatters, me being one of them, help put together the 16 seeds of the best 1955 Disneyland attraction. But of course, there's a few that miss the dance. Chris, what are some for you? Uh, for me, it's my attraction that everyone loves to hate. It's the Storybook Land canal boats <laughs> that right. were not, a, not ready on opening day. And Taylor absolutely like shredded it uh, <laughs> on our best fantasy land attraction bracket. And I guess what? There was a bunch of mud. It was like a really, really just poorly. Yeah, it like, just reinforced. wasn't ready. Yeah, it just wasn't just ready. Wasn't ready. I like the attraction a lot. I think it's a cool little like uh, quaint experience. The uh, little minor spectacles, if you will. Sure. I'm into it. I'm into it. Um, also, Space Station X1, which was basically an exhibit that you walk into and you look through this window and you see this, what is supposed to be Earth. It's like you're in a you're in a uh, orbiting spaceship and you're looking out back onto the planet, and there aren't a whole lot of photos from this experience. But I saw some really cool Herb Ryman concept art that uh, makes it look like it uses a lot of like uh, black light and some other visual illusions that these early Imagineers were just masters at. Now, so I really appreciate that. And what's cool is. They're kind of like bringing that concept back to life at Epcot with Space 220, a restaurant that's going to be opening up. And they've got apparently just some crazy effects that make it look uh, just like you're looking out onto planet Earth. I can't wait to see that. And and the same effect is going to be utilized in the new Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel (laughs) in Florida. So, I mean, Galaxy's Edge was awesome. Uh, please, please don't let me do Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser <laughs> Hotel as well. I just might, just might. Uh, so yeah, those are two missed dance for me. What about you? Uh, my my one and only, I I think I'll say is the Main Street Cinema, only because uh, great place for some air conditioning, and it's just such a staple of Main Street itself. Uh, walking down and passing that cinema and seeing the. Mickey cartoons happening inside and, uh, you know, you, you just get that that Main Street vibe immediately. Main Street has these very iconic facades and this is one of them. And uh, I, I can see why it doesn't make this bracket because you walk in to escape the heat and you look at a few screens and the uh, depending on how the audio quality is functioning that day, some of them might be a little louder than others and you're hearing the the sounds and scores of another cartoon while watching yours um but it's just such a staple of main street i will have to go with that one tess any for you oh i was honestly so mad when i saw that storybook and casey jr were on this bracket thank you you know i just i i like how they're like inverted rides of each other that you can do one or the other and get a similar but different experience like mandy's more of a loves looking at the models as she loves the storybook canal boats. Whereas I like seeing the bird's eye view from Casey Jr. And I like that score and I like seeing the fantasy land views as well. So I, I think both those attractions are cute. I mean, I won't wait in super long queues for them, but I mean, they're, they add a great experience to the park. So I'm bummed they're not in this bucket. 
Casey Jr. doesn't have a long queue. And one of the, I think it was the last time or the second to last time I was at Disneyland Park, uh, there was like a ridiculously long line for Casey Jr. It was like a 30 minute wait. And there there was like nowhere for the people to stand. So like it was this obnoxious like obstruction in the middle of the walkway in Fantasyland because there was nowhere else for anyone to go. Uh, Tess, are you a... Uh, monkey cage rider when you when you ride Casey Jr. Um, usually, but if there's already like some little kids in there or something, I won't like squeeze in. I find that awkward. If I can get in first, I'll go in. Otherwise, I'll I'm usually only going to parks with one other person, and I'll just take whatever's there. But if I can get the monkey cage, I will. Gotcha. Well, Kyle, it sounds like we got another uh, transportation attraction enthusiast yeah. on the podcast today. So. Uh, <laughs> We we might be teaming up on you with a yeah. few of these matchups, uh, but let's get into it. Let's announce our field of 16 for our best 1955 Disneyland attraction bracket. Let's cue the dramatic music. Kyle, take us away. The number one seed is taking us to see the backside of water. It's the Jungle Cruise. Never say never land. Coming in at number two, it's Peter Pan's flight. Your attention, please. The Disneyland Railroad now arriving from a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom into the number three seed. That was good. Thanks. We should take the Mad Tea Party and push it somewhere else. Coming in at number four, it's the Mad Tea Party. (laughs) Spinning our heads right round, right round at the five spot is King Arthur's Carousel. Mission Space, but without the whiplash. Coming in at number six, it's Rocket to the Moon. Soaring into the number seven spot is Dumbo the Flying Elephant. Rolling, rolling, rolling on the river. Coming in at number eight, it's Mark Twain Riverboat. Loud as hell at the number nine seed is Autopia. This attraction is ass. Coming in at number 10, it's the Pack Mules. What? Uh, Before the kiss was enchanted and before her adventure was scary, it was just her adventures. Coming in at the 11th spot is Snow White and her adventures. I'm on a boat. Coming in at number 12, it's the Tomorrowland Boats. We're merrily, 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 merrily on our way to the number 13 seed. It's Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. The first ever Finding Nemo attraction. Coming in at number 14, it's the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit. It's shiny, it's sponsored, it's the number 15 seed, Kaiser's Hall of Aluminum fame. Walk into Tomorrowland like what up, I got a big clock. Coming in at number 16, it's the clock of the world. All right, Tess, we've got our field of 16. Uh, Any early favorites here? Um, honestly, if we, if we get into part two and it's all extinct attractions, I'm going to be so pissed at you guys. So, <laughs> as long as you guys don't throw your stupid opinions everywhere, per usual. I might do it now. will be fine. Thoughts and prayers, Tess. Thoughts <laughs> and prayers. Let's start this thing out. We got the number one seed Jungle Cruise versus number 16, Clock of the World. Jungle Cruise, everybody knows Jungle Cruise. Yep. It's the number one seed for a reason. Uh, it, it's an original attraction, and it's one that like people associate with being an original attraction. 
It was one of those rides that during the 50th anniversary of Disneyland Park got a little gold boat, little gold canopy. And it's definitely experienced a lot of growth over the years. Literally, back in the early days, the vegetation was just not quite as dense. Kyle, you probably have a little bit more about the history of the ride and like the the changes with any animatronics or anything like that. Do you want to get into that now? Yeah, I mean, I I know where you're going here. Uh, I don't have anything much about the animatronics and how those show scenes have changed, but the jungle itself, uh, they they had to get really creative with the horticulture there. They brought in a lot of plants that weren't native to Anaheim. They turned over a lot of orange trees to make it look a little bit more exotic with the roots sticking out. And in the 2010s, the jungle was considered an actual jungle. Like it's now a self-sustaining ecosystem in which the foliage creates uh, uh, nutrients for the soil and is able to live off of itself. So really, the horticulturists at Disneyland don't do a ton to the jungle these days, except for trim the branches out of the way of the boats, which is like insane. And I feel like it's not a fact that's ever talked about and we should be talking about it. Like this is a an attraction that is self-sustaining to the point where Disneyland doesn't even have to touch the the show elements except for like its own animatronics and its own boats. Like the the jungle itself is a jungle. It's just there. Uh, do we know anything about the evolution of the skipper shtick? Like did it start out as this kind of like corny narration? No. Bit? No. 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 So this idea for this Jungle Cruise uh, all comes from the fact that Walt was obsessed with adventure things. And he produced a TV series, True Life Adventures, in which they followed around like animals. It's basically the modern day like planet Earth, right? Where the the narrator is telling the story of this seal's journey for finding food and, and whatever. That kind of uh, makeup of a nature show really came from Walt and, and True Life Adventure series where they would follow around these animals and then uh, make up stories to go along with what these animals are doing, even if it's not actually what's happening there. Um, and so they wanted to bring that into the park. And originally it was going to be like real animals, real animals in the in the tiki room. They had to shoot that down because you can't have birds over people's heads. And sure. real animals in this Jungle Cruise attraction, you can't just have like elephants in a pen just like chilling there for this attraction. That doesn't make sense. So luckily they didn't do that. And uh, it, it was like a serious thing. Like you were going on a cruise uh, through the jungle with a skipper who was like leading you through these dangerous scenarios of piranhas and hippo attack. And like none of that was kitschy and, and campy. It was like, they try to make it as real as possible. So I have a um, Enchanted Tiki Room vinyl that on the B side is the narration, the promotional narration for the Jungle Cruise. Um, and it's just like a, an action adventure tale as if hmm. like we're going down this treacherous path. So that's how it started. And then I believe in the seven, 60s and 70s, like late 60s, early 70s, um, especially as this like counterculture starts coming up and you you have like the establishment of like teenagers and and them wanting to separate themselves from their parents it was this rebellious thing to now make this ride a little bit more silly and and goofy and now it's just to the exact extreme right now it's just the silliest thing in the world um which works because animatronics are kind of outdated we can all tell these days that 
they're not real animals. So them being able to lean into that is great. So um, the the clock of the world was was just a clock. It was this big <laughs> like where the astral orbiter is today. Right when you enter Tomorrowland, it was this big not quite cylindrical structure. It's kind of hourglass shaped and it had a world map 360 degrees wrapped around it and the top would move with the hour of the day kind of like rotating around the time zones and then there was like a ball on the side that had the minutes of the hour so you could see exactly what time it was anywhere in the world by by looking at the clock. Yeah. And that's about it. It's pretty simple, but it kind of like goes to show the the attitude of the people that were going to be attending Disneyland Park in 1955. Yeah. The the World's Fair thing was brand new. The idea of commercial air travel was brand new. So people were were really starting to think globally. Uh, World War II was over, and so we're we're kind of like in this this post peace era where I think people are thinking about. Uh, you know, going to other countries recreationally. So I think it was cool for them to see this clock where you could see exactly what time it was anywhere in the world. And it was kind of like uh, book book ended by the flags of the world that were also in that same entry plaza there. So um, it was kind of like a little preview of where Walt would go, eventually providing so many attractions to the World's Fair. Uh, in New York City. So it's like, seems really boring as a quote unquote attraction. Like, is it really an attraction? The way we think about attraction is like, it's got to be a ride. But the way 1955 Disneyland thought about attraction is just, it was something that would like draw your interest. Right. Um, and I think this was one of those things. I don't know that people would be super into it like today. <laughs> Because it seems no. pretty boring, but um, it's Disneyland really was a park in 1955. You know, it wasn't a, yes. a place of total immersion. It was a place to distract yourself and to just like have a nice day. And maybe, you know, seeing the clock was was exciting because it was probably something you had never seen before. Uh, I, I really would love to like advance the quirky, quirky little statue uh, in round one here. But I think uh, the... Attraction of the Jungle Cruise was great when the park opened and still remains today. I think when we're thinking about early attractions, I think I like them to be a little bit like weird. And yeah. I don't, I don't, th I think Jungle Cruise, like the way you described its early life, it does feel a little bit weird and kind of like boring a bit, you know, like, <laughs> oh, look at all these plants that, you know, you don't see in Southern California every day. That would be sure. so lost on uh, people in 2021. So. I, I, I like it for, for both reasons. So I'm going with Jungle Cruise here. The clock of the world is so emblematic of Tomorrowland's issue of never being about tomorrow because tomorrow catches up way faster than they can build tomorrow. Like, what's so tomorrow about a clock that tells the time about the present? Like you're you're not looking ahead any. This is the time around the world at that exact moment. And that's the first thing that you see when you walk into Tomorrowland. I just think that's super ironic. And I think that they recognized how ironic that was because I found a clipping from the LA Times uh, in 1955. This was the advertisement for Disneyland uh, right before it opened. 
and it says 1955 becomes 1986. <laughs> so that's tomorrow, 1986. As you enter the new era, Tomorrowland, where our hopes and dreams for the future become today's realities. Symbolizing the time transition is Tomorrowland's futuristic clock. At a glance, this elaborate chronometer tells you the exact minute and hour of anywhere on the face of the planet Earth. So they obviously were like, you know, it it tells the time, but look how futuristic it looks. (laughs) And now you can tell the time anywhere. And in the future, we'll all be able to tell the time anywhere because we're going to be able to travel there. We're going to be able to have these devices that will tell us in our in our homes, maybe, you know, and we do now. Right. We have them in our pockets. Um, Just this is a massive statue uh, in the middle of the park. I'm with you. Jungle Cruise is definitely going to move on as the better 1955 attraction. Uh, Tess, I'm assuming you agree. This would have been the wild opinion that you would have hated us for if we had moved the clock on. Well, why the f*** did this clock make it over Casey, Casey Jr.? Like... <laughs> Those Snapchatters, I don't know. All right, let's move on to the next matchup here. It is the number eight Mark Twain Riverboat versus number nine Autopia. Uh, so Mark Twain and Autopia both still exist. I'd be interested if in six months we can still say that about Autopia or if they're going to decide to tear that thing out and make it tron over there or something which i'd be super down for but autopia we've talked about this before because this this attraction has come up on past episodes but we all know how it started uh bobby gurr the best bob built the uh the the cars and literally anything that moves at disneyland out of these fiberglass little go-karts uh opening day a lot of them didn't work Uh, a lot of them were being destroyed by kids because they had no speed governor on them and there were no guardrails on the track. So people were crashing into each other. People were falling, crashing out of the course. Uh, it was just a big mess. And then eventually they reeled it back in. Uh, there's been different iterations of Autopia. You have uh, uh, unfortunately named Midget Autopia that was in uh, the like Fantasyland area. You had some track changes to the current Autopia and then you've had different sponsors come in Chevron Honda that have changed the the look and feel of the attraction itself um but you get to drive a car as a kid and that's pretty cool as a kid uh, we've talked about the licenses that you can get printed out now that obviously wasn't a thing at the time but uh, the iteration has shown up and it stood the test of time for the most part i think probably because it's just too much of a pain to get to remove it's a pretty large footprint and they would have to have a pretty strong plan to go in there and tear that thing up it's up against the mark twain riverboat which uh you know it it's an opening day attraction that actually had its maiden voyage four days before the park opened when walt and his wife lillian had their 30th wedding anniversary and that was the first time that they took this thing out um interestingly enough they didn't test how many people should and could fit on this boat. <laughs> so on uh, opening day, they packed on about 300 people. And as it went around the river, folks wanted to see the different sights on both sides of the boat, right? Because as you go, there's a narration that happens and it's like, over oh, on this side is the, the Native American village and people would go over to that side to see it. Nowadays, it's not that popular and you don't run around to see everything. But people did, and it would start tipping the boat slightly. And they're like, uh-oh, that's not great. Four days later, they packed 500 people onto the Mark Twain. 
and it started taking on water and ran off the track and into the bank. <laughs> That's great. Love it. It's amazing. Um, so when this boat was being built, it was, I mean, Disney likes to tell these stories of like, I don't know, how can we ever tell if they're telling the truth? But their publicity department said, as it was being built, it was the first paddle wheeler built in the last 50 years at that time. So basically since 1900, this was the first paddler. Um, when they first brought it in, they filled up the river with water and then the water just went into the ground and they had no river. So they had to redrain it again and put some clay in there to, to hold the water. And then it was able to take its first trip with way too many people on it. Interesting facts that I didn't know, but I discovered when when researching a little bit here. This thing burns diesel fuel, which what the I don't know why I didn't know that. So it burns the fuel to heat the water to turn it into steam to make the the thing go, which seems huh. unnecessary because because <laughs> diesel, know. yeah, because yeah. <laughs> fossil um, fuels. All right, and the water that they use. For the steam is fresh water, not the river water, because the river water is disgusting, and they don't want it to ruin the boiler in the in the um in the boat. So they just burn, they just steam off fresh water, which seems like a huge waste of fresh water <laughs> in a in a state that experiences droughts literally every summer, literally every day of our lives. There's a drought happening here in California, and it has three speeds: it has slow, it has fast. And it has phantasmic. And that is <laughs> real life. <laughs> um, we've, uh, we've talked about the Mark Twain uh, in previous episodes. Go around the river, see some stuff. Uh, it, it's been altered slightly, many times actually, uh, over its history uh, because of the way that the river flows and what's been built, and especially with Galaxy's Edge. Um, and it had some really not great scenes at the at the beginning and narratives surrounding Native Americans and indigenous people and their relationship to the settlers uh, at that time, which is such a 1950s thing to include. Um, you know, nowadays, this boat is fantastic, very relaxing. I love going on it uh, in the middle of the day to kind of escape the craziness of the parks. Um, but, you know, those problematic elements in the 50s is not not the greatest folks so uh, i'm i think i'm gonna go autopia here uh just based upon that uh, specifically even though today i'd definitely be riding the mark twain i don't ride autopia but in the grand scheme of these two histories uh, i'm gonna I'm go with autopia on this one wow i cannot believe you advanced autopia i know to be honest i can't either i mean and like just because mark twain had so many issues uh, well, because the attraction like did. The, the Mark Twain, the human, of course, oh, did. Yeah. Uh, well, but, the, yeah. but attraction in the park at the time, I still don't feel good about it. I mean, like, I don't know. It just feels like uh, that every time I pass the, the Native American village and like the chief on the horse, I, I get that it's like this regal thing. And then, oh, there's the shaman telling a story. But it feels like we're still exoticizing these folks that were here it kind of feels like what they're doing with the um the jungle cruise you know that they're taking that out because it makes them seem so exotic when that shouldn't be the depiction sure uh yeah totally get that i think that the like i said in the last matchup like the draw of this park 
in the early days was really kind of a leisure experience. And yeah. it's hard to, it's easy to forget today when like we all go strapped with backpacks and like, you know, tech to it's help us with our day. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it is not a pleasurable day, you know, like if you have one day off a week and you go to a Disney park, like you're going to have a bad time when you come back to work. Cause it's, it takes its toll on you. And when I think about the Mark Twain, I think about it as one of those slower experiences that the park has to offer. You get some sun up in the top deck, you know, you go on a little boat ride around yeah. the river. It's nice. It's a nice way to spend like 20 minutes. And, yeah. and Autopia is just, wild <laughs> it is like high energy spastic the type of vibe i'm trying to avoid when i'm going to disneyland you know yeah and especially like for these early park goers who, who are really trying to focus on leisure and and here's I have a like i have a counterpoint okay. okay okay mark twain sits in Frontierland. slow west more of a, a simple lifestyle autopia exists in Tomorrowland, this future that is going to be high speed. We're going to be sitting on rockets going to the moon. We're going to be doing all of these crazy fast things in the future. They, they, even though this park is for the kind of family leisure, uh, those attractions fit very well for where they're located. So I think even at that, you know, are people really going to enjoy it? Or if, the, if they're there for the leisure, is Autopia even right for them? I think that's based on the land that they want to attend. So then like, what's the vision for Autopia? Like, what's the vision of the future that everyone's going to be driving like little tiny two-person cars? No, the, just that we're going to go fast. Things are just going to be going quick. We're going to be able to cover more distances faster. We're going to be on rockets. We're going to be on super highways. We're going to be, you know, I think it just fits that energy, that kinetic crazy chaos energy that is um autopia and tomorrow I, I i see what you're getting at i don't i don't think i'm picking up what you're throwing down though <laughs> uh i think autopia is an attraction built for little crazy kids who want to drive a car <laughs> and they can do it safely at a young age uh the, the the kicker for me though for how much i hate autopia the kicker is i will never ever Ever until the day I die, not love waving to people when I'm on a moving object and they are not. <laughs> love, love it. When I'm on Mark Twain and I'm waving to people down in New Orleans Square and they wave back to me, it hits me deep into my soul. <laughs> it's, I don't know what it is. Like, it's one of those simple pleasures in life where you're like, hey, bye, I'll never see you again. But it's just like this moment of, <laughs> this moment of like pure, joyful, innocent human connection. You know, I love it. Yeah. Love it. Uh, so I'm going Mark Twain for sure, <laughs> which means, Tess, you're going to have to break the tie here. Oh my God. Um, so I think. Last time Mandy was here, she might have shared the story of us getting stuck with a weird ass uh, cast member when we were asked to steer the Mark Twain boat. And yeah, I, she absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it almost takes my experience of the attraction. Um, but honestly, any chance to see the rivers of America, I mean, all the colonial colonialism and all that 
stuff um, obviously is problematic, but I, like I said before, I am someone who loves the sights, sounds, and smells of Disneyland. And so just taking a break on the Mark Twain sounds refreshing. I'm not an Autopia hater like most people. I can take it or leave it. But I think the biggest missed opportunity of Autopia is that there's a little to no sights besides like the random, I don't know, what is he? astronaut robot dude that randomly comes out with billboards like it's such an ugly ride <laughs> that they have done nothing to spruce up so just for the aesthetic appeal um, i have to go with mark twain all right mark twain moves on to the next round next matchup is number four mad tea party versus number 13 mr toad's wild ride now these are two rides that are still in operation today and for the most part, aren't super different from how they operated originally. Mad Tea Party is in a different location. Uh, used to be what? In between the castle and the carousel? Yep. And and now it's over, kind of shoved off to the side near Storybook Land. And uh, Mr. Toad was wooden cutouts back then, and still to this day is wooden cutouts. And yep. it's one of my problems like with the attraction where I don't I don't mind them sending Mr. Toad away and and making it some other more enjoyable higher tech dark ride experience. I'm I'm totally okay with it for that reason. But like Mad Tea Party I do I don't I don't want to throw up on on an attraction <laughs> and like the spinny gets me. I will ride a 300 foot giga coaster and have no problem at all. But if as soon as you start spinning me, uh-huh game gamers like uh, like no thank you uh this is a ride that i think i shouted out it's um appeal like maybe watching it from the outside or just listening to like the music loop um in the area that is the mad tea party song the unbirthday song but like there are not a whole lot of times when i'm when i want to get on the mad tea party because again like when i go to the parks i'm kind of there to have like a leisurely time and like uh take take a little breather from from the real world and, and i don't want to get my blood pressure going too high <laughs> and like that is the bad tea party i don't love mr toad but i think when we talked about Fantasyland attractions we really shouted out the dark ride in particular as like kind of this uh, beacon for like disneyland attractions and especially like early disneyland attractions this was something that like just wasn't done anywhere yep. else like this was a major draw of the park I mean, you can sit on a swing set and twist yourself up in the chain and then unravel yourself. And that's basically the Mad Tea Party. Uh, whereas, like, you know, going on a dark ride that's all <laughs> themed and theatrical uh, and it's got some recognizable characters from your, some of your favorite Disney films, you just can't do that anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think that's why I definitely like Mr. Toad here. Is, is Mr. Toad recognizable? Is he someone that... You know, you're going to go to this park and be like, oh, yeah, Mr. Toad, love that guy. Love, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, love I, was born, I was born in the 90s. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what people were into back then. Like, the we haven't talked about 20,000 Leagues, but that exhibit stood for 11 years, yeah. you know? And, like, today, if you were like, oh, 20,000 Leagues, no one would be like, oh, hell yeah, we got to get ourselves to <laughs> Disneyland. But, like, maybe Mr. Toad was, was like, big. And, and uh, the book, The Wind in the Willows, was, yeah. like, a very popular novel. Yeah, totally, totally. It was known. It was a known character in <laughs> yeah. literature as well. Totally, and it has a huge following, right? Like people love this ride, and and separated from its entity, 
Um, when I was looking up some things to talk about for this ride, because you're right, very little has changed about it. Um, you're on a wild ride through London as basically Mr. Toad. Um, but what's awesome about the way that they do it is that this isn't like a scene in Wind in the Willows. Like this is not, this part doesn't happen, right? They're taking these characters and putting us in a scenario in which could have happened in that world. Um, and I think that's really creative as opposed to like a story retelling of like Pinocchio, right? That's just a, a retelling of that movie. Uh, Snow White, just a retelling, the current version of Snow White, just a retelling of that movie. Here, it's like you're you're going on a wild ride in the Toad universe. And I think that's awesome. But while I was looking up things uh, to say about this, I found that Disney either like produced or distributed a live action Wind in the Willows that featured like the Monty Python crew. I think I've I think I've seen it, and and the only reason I have is because I was in a production of Wind in the Willows in high school. <laughs> I played I played Jack Weasel. I was the okay. the king of the Weasel crew. I was the the antagonist in the show, and it was so much fun. Yeah, and so I had like I went on like a little Wind in the Willows, little Mister Toad kick when I was like seventeen. Nineteen ninety seven is when this movie came out. Had I've never heard of it, never seen anything about it. And it looks so bizarre and so just like alternate timeline of the universe that I definitely think I need to see it. Uh, it, it just is so, so weird looking, so bizarre. Um, but yeah, so this sits in the same place. It's always sat. Uh, you're right about Mad Tea Party. It had a, a, a move uh, from where it originally sat, which was kind of wedged in between the castle and the carousel. But when it first opened... The the turntable or the um the wheel in the middle of your your teacup didn't have a governor on it. So like if you hate spinning now, imagine spinning in 1955 in which you could just go as fast as you want <laughs> because <laughs> that's what was allowed. They just didn't have anything on it. It didn't have any like theme when it first opened. Like it, obviously it was the Mad Tea Party, but the, it just sat on like a bare turntable until a few months later after opening because as we've stated this park was not ready to open when it did uh, a few months later they painted it to that kind of psychedelic like swirl that you see in a lot of the old old like Disneyland episodes and the promotional materials um but yeah so now it, it moved in 1983 to where it is today which is honestly the better move right because like now when you walk through and you have like a, a castle courtyard with the rides and you have King Arthur's, which we'll talk about uh, stationed right in the center of everything. That just makes so much more sense than like the mad tea party sitting in a castle courtyard. Um, I like where it is now. It, it shoved off next to uh, Alice, which is obviously perfect. That's where it should be across from the Matterhorn across from storybook. And like, I, I know I get, I understand that you hate to spin, but the vibes are immaculate. The vibes are immaculate on this ride. The from having two different versions of it, really, from day to night, different experiences, different feelings. You can't help but laugh while you're on this thing, uh, because it's just so. I I have fun. I like to spin, so I have a great time doing it. And I just think it's just one of those rides that just you just smile. You can't help but just laugh and smile as you're spinning around on this thing. And I like Mister Toad. 
I, I don't think it's a bad ride. Um, I, I don't know that I would be sad to see it go if it was to be replaced with something, but I'm also not like on, on Diz Twitter being like, we got to get rid of this ride. Um, but for me, I think that the, the better encapsulation of, uh, of this 1955 attraction is this mad tea party, which has become not only a staple of Disneyland, but a staple of parks across the world. Um, and I just really, really like this attraction. So I'm moving it on, which means Tess, you're coming back. what you got? So Mad Tea Party is great because it's so picturesque. I mean, whether it's, you know, you get a photo of it in the daytime with Matterhorn in the background or at nighttime and everything's lit up. It's so beautiful. Um, I've, you know, I mean, every park that you go to has a spinner ride like that. Um, but the theming is great. I mean, not only is it by Alice, but it's by the uh, one of the Mad Hatter shops. So that little corner of the universe that's Alice in Wonderland is great. Um, as far as which one I ride more, it's definitely toads. Um, not, I mean, especially when it's rainy and cold in the winter and you get to go through hell and heat up. It's great. Um, (laughs) and honestly, honestly, ever since Montero came out, all I want to do is go on Mr. Toad and start screaming. (laughs) That's perfect. Um, somewhere Mandy's screaming at you guys because she loves this ride um and i think i think it's totally ridiculous like all the og dark rides were not meant for children um so now that the scary trees are gone from snow white i'm sure that mr toad isn't that far behind but i i just love it i i I really do like mr toad so that's what's moving on for me oh we got the upset the upset has happened 13 mr toad takes down the immaculate vibes of the mad tea party Let's move on to this next matchup is number three, King Arthur's Carousel versus the number 12, Tomorrowland Boats. Tomorrowland had boats, everybody, and uh, it was weird. So over where next to the Matterhorn, next to the Chimichanga Shack, as I like to call it, there's like this landing that jets out into the Tomorrowland like lagoon. And that landing was where the boats were docked. And there were these little personal boats that you could take around the Tomorrowland like lagoon area uh, of of mi- like limbo fantasy land Tomorrowland like it's that weird middle ground uh, where it's not really anything and it switched so after uh, these so the first iteration of these boats had a ton of issues when they first opened up uh, in 1955 to the point where they just like shut it down and then revamped them to make them look not only more futuristic by adding these really goofy, like exaggerated wings on the back of them, um, but also to try and fix the motor problem, which was that they overheated because they were encased in fiberglass. (laughs) And so if you're running these things all day, they're going to overheat. These things, quote unquote, survived for quite a while. You get into uh, the 80s and 90s when this was rebranded into the boat cruise to Gummy Glen uh, as a yes. part of the uh, yes. Disneyland afternoon uh, area of Fantasyland in which you would go see all the gummy bears as you <laughs> drove these boats through. Um, but it was technically like the first day one attraction, the Tomorrowland boats to like permanently close out of all of the 1955 attractions, which I thought was crazy. That's super interesting. Uh, yep. And that happened in January 1956. 
when it changed over to Tomorrowland and then it closed and would try to reopen. It just never lasted, unfortunately. It's up against the carousel, which has obviously lasted. Uh, you have the... If you, if you think about Fantasyland, you have so many major icons of Disneyland located in this very small footprint. You obviously have the castle, you have the teacups, you have Dumbo, which we'll talk about, and then you have the carousel at the very center of it all. This carousel came from Toronto, Canada, uh, from a park up there that they were running since 1922. Uh, interestingly, I found that like people think that this uh, carousel was built in 1875, which would be dope if that was true. But Disney, I, I think I got it from the D23 website where they say they can't confirm that. <laughs> like that's just been a story that's been told about it. But if it's true, it's awesome. And they, they to get all of the horses, because the original one had a bunch of animals and Walt's like, no, they have to all be horses and they all have to be jumping. So they kind of just scavenge for antique horses. So like every single horse is like an antique horse that they've had to change and repaint and make it so that they look like they're jumping from everywhere around North America, including Coney Island, which I think is awesome. And there used to be wooden chariots as well on this carousel. And they took those things out and they reused the, the designs and the, the parts of the chariots to cover, uh, to decorate the Calliope and to make some of the Casey Jr. train cars, which is what a great reuse reduce recycle version of them just trying to scrap something together to open up the gates at the right time you know like i think that's just a fascinating piece of trivia so it was kind of based um originally the carousel was over right behind the teacups which was right in front of the castle like when you walk through it and then they moved it so it's just the center of the courtyard pushed back and that's just a fantastic place to be the soundtrack is just like Calliope versions of Disney songs. A lot of them from the 90s these days. Uh, you get like Little Mermaid, uh, Beauty and the Beast, like all that, all that good stuff. And it's just uh, it's a great area piece to have that there moving, playing the music. Like it just sets the atmosphere unlike really anything else at the park. So failed boats versus this carousel that is such a, a key piece of a land. I'm going to have to go with the carousel. The carousel is is that attraction that like I I never ride it, but every nope. time we talk about it, I go dang, I I couldn't imagine the park without it though. Like, yeah. it's what I wish I did have time to ride. A hundred percent agree with you. Love the pipe organ. Love the soundtrack that it provides to the whole area. Love the fun fact about all of the horses and like acquiring all of them because yes, most carousels are a menagerie. Of different animals uh the the one in balboa park in san diego I, I rode that one uh last month when i was back in california and it was like i i think i rode on like a sea dragon or something <laughs> and i was like uh i kind of like a horsey better totally the tomorrowland boats though man they have such a fun story and we brought up the like the the future aspect of tomorrowland like what was the vision for for right. like boat travel in the future like we were all gonna have like our own personal watercraft or i have no idea i have no idea how it's supposed to fit there <laughs> i think walt predicted global warming and storm surges and <laughs> rising rising tides and he's just basically saying look 
we're all going to be living in some type of like aquatic society one day. And this was his early version of the personal watercrafts we're all going to have, or our grandchildren are going to have to have. Um, Hopefully they won't be operated by diesel engines and instead it will be operated by solar or some type of clean energy. I I, I want to, I want to be that guy who's like, (laughs) give me, give me, give me the busted attraction. Because when I think of 1955 Disneyland attractions, I do think of busted attractions. Like I, I don't think of like, Oh, the, Oh, Dumbo, the original. I think of like, it was a train wreck and there were a lot of bad ideas that were thrown around. And the Tomorrowland boats really fit that for me. But I think going up against King Arthur Carousel, I can't do it. I might have done it against another attraction, but not King Arthur Carousel. Clock of the world. I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Regardless, uh, King Arthur Carousel is advancing. Tess, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I I think my favorite... A fun fact about the Tomorrowland boats is that when they went from the Tomorrowland boats to the Phantom boats, when they looked like sharks or whatever, um, or I don't know what they were supposed to look like. That's what they looked like to me. Um, they they wanted to negate the problem of like kids just going off into the abyss with in these boats, and so for they had fourteen boats, and for every boat they had a cast member sitting there. Those 14 cast members that were out of the water that they had to pay. So it was a money sucker. So that's why it ultimately closed because yeah. that's so many people. That's yeah. so many people that they didn't want to pay. So oh. um, it's objectively not a good attraction um, business-wise. So yes, definitely King Arthur. <laughs> All right, let's hop over to the other side of the bracket where we have number two, Peter Pan's flight versus number 15, the Aluminum Hall of fame let's talk about this so when you enter tomorrowland you got star tours on your right buzz Lightyear on your left and then beyond that is like an extended queue area for star tours and then fast pass machines for buzz Lightyear. so those used to be like dug out and they used to be little like show areas for various random things and walt I described him to my mom a couple of weeks ago as the king of getting other people to pay for his stuff. Yes. Yes. And yes. so with that talent is he had this dream of this park, whatever. And he was like, how, how can I not pay for it? And part of that was like taking sponsors being like, Hey, Monsanto, you want to make an attraction? <laughs> and like, you pay us and we'll develop all the technology and then, you know, your name will expire from it and then we'll just have it forever. Mm-hmm. So part of that kind of like business attitude that Walt had uh, manifested itself in the park with some more boring sponsored exhibits like the Hall of Aluminum, which was an exhibit brought to you by Kaiser Aluminum. <laughs> are they are they a company anymore? I don't I don't really know. I don't either. But this was 1955. I mean, we weren't going to the moon for another like 15 years. So um, people were really kind of like uh, still looking to the stars and looking to space and being like, what's it going to be like when we when we go to space? Yeah. Uh, so and Kaiser so- Aluminum still is a company. They it looks like they make uh, plane parts, 
car parts and what they describe as general engineering. <laughs> so Okay, so they, they don't make the aluminum foil that you put on your cookie tray. No, this is like uh, high-grade building things aluminum, not your uh, leftover but I aluminum. Think, but I think they used to. I think they used to supply, supply like household goods. And so people would like know the name sure. when they go to Disneyland. Yeah. But basically this attraction was just Kaiser just being like aluminum is the metal of the future and everything's going to be made out of aluminum. Yeah. Uh, first of all, when we go to space and we're like living and working in space, all of our clothes are going to be made out of aluminum because <laughs> this, the rays of the sun are going to be so hot and so dangerous that the aluminum is just going to like reflect it back out into space and we're going to be we're going to be totally fine. There's a there's like a little um like a narration for this exhibit. It's like 2 minutes long. I guess it was like a loop or something and one of the things they were talking about was that aluminum was going to be used to build rocket ships which I guess maybe, you know, that came true. Yeah. But one of the it was funny Kind of how they were selling it to people was like, it's going to make for much richer payloads when we explore the depths of outer space. I'm like, this like, I guess this was still kind of in that little period in American history where we're still kind of into colonialism. Totally. And and when we were thinking about space, we were thinking about let's rob it of all of its natural resources. Mm-hmm. And Kaiser was going to be there to help with that. And I think that made a lot of Americans happy. And that's it. It's about it. I don't really know where the Hall of Fame aspect comes into play, but I think maybe it was just a fun name to to get people in the door. Yeah. I believe it was a free exhibit. This was back when Disneyland was on the ticket system. So you had to pay per attraction. Right. But I think the Illumina Hall of Fame was a freebie. Which, I mean, I would have paid at least an A for that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Going up against Peter Pan's flight. This was the winner of our best fantasy land attraction bracket. Yep. I mean, it is pretty much the quintessential dark ride. I think if the line wasn't so long, I would ride it a lot more. Uh, the ride duration is very short. The queue is very long and it just doesn't make a lot of sense to wait an hour to ride an attraction in the last 60 seconds. The effects have been beefed up a lot over the years. This is an attraction that Disney takes care of so seriously yes <laughs> better than most and i mean like it, this is an interesting matchup it's like you've got the quintessential dark ride which again is an experience that i think attracted people to come to the park if you were thinking about like the the uniqueness of the offerings there um and then you've got the hall of aluminum which is like perfect example of like what this park really was when you dig beneath the surface uh beyond the the rides that were the attention grabbers you've got these like sponsored experiences that help pay for this project these really boring things that were just kind of there to fill the space because there really wasn't that much to do etc etc i mean i i don't think you can argue that peter pan's flight's probably a more enjoyable uh 1955 disneyland attraction i i think uh, the aluminum hall of fame like i said is is what i think of when i think of 1955 disneyland but if we're talking about best attractions, Peter Pan's flight has to advance. Yeah. I think that there's an opportunity for a different bracket where it's like the most 1955, like we did the most DCA <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, 1.0, right. you know, like there's definitely an opportunity in which we would have 
all of these like uh these exhibits these sponsored uh events these you know world's fair-esque type of things to see at disneyland um but you're right it's definitely peter pan's flight uh and the thing that really put me over the edge because i cannot find out any information about it is that the uh the aluminum hall of fame from d23 this quote says told the history of the metal and the men who developed this process for its mass production and described the methods of use. A major icon was a huge aluminum pig. And there's a photo of it. And it's just this massive statue of a pig, which I would assume it was Kaiser's like mascot or, or like, you know, logo or something. I have no idea. Just at the center of the hall. And it's just like, Obviously, the sponsor deal was like Disney doesn't have creative direction here. It's all it's all Kaiser (laughs) and they can do whatever they want, including put a huge aluminum pig into the center of the exhibit. It's quintessential 1955, but it's definitely not the best attraction when you're matched up against a dark ride that has really kind of established what a dark ride should be and has really inspired Disney to try and be as immersive as that ride was, even in its first iteration, uh, which I'll talk about more Next time. So Tess, do you agree? Should the uh, aluminum pig be sent packing home or uh, are you, are we thinking that this exhibit should be <laughs> taking down Peter Pan? A uh, little did you guys know, I am the biggest aluminum fan. Oh. Um, no, <laughs> no. Uh, Peter Pan. I was going to say, oh my, you're not one of those people that puts no. aluminum in your mouth because they like the, the, the sensation of metal. No, no, okay, no, 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 no. Peter, Peter Pan's elite. So yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Let's move on to this next matchup. It is the number two Dumbo the Flying Elephant versus the number 10 Pack Mules. Uh, the, there, were, there, were, there was literally Pack Mules at Disneyland. Um, also called Mule Pack, if depending on what source you have seen on the, on the internet. But basically, Frontierland was massive. Like, there was a huge footprint of just nothing. And in that nothing, you could ride a mule. Or you could ride in a covered wagon, or you could ride on a stagecoach. And they all just went on the same track. Now, the mules, I wish I'd, I didn't write down the, the number that they had, but it looked like you could essentially be like a pack of 15. And you're all just kind of traveling down this path through uh, frontier lands, like, you know, wilderness, uh, fake wilderness. And that was, that was the attraction. There were some things that changed along the way after it opened in 1955. So like in 1956, uh, they added the town of Rainbow Ridge. And along with that came the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train. uh, And that changed the name of the pack mules to the Rainbow Ridge Pack Mules. (laughs) And so you would walk through or you would like ride these mules through the... They show it in a lot of the Disneyland episodes where it's like the the spinning, tumbling rocks that you're riding through the, the cave train on and then the train's going uh, below and then you can look up and it's the pack mule pack <laughs> like on the ridge of of this yeah. rainbow uh, rainbow cavern area. Um, and then in 1959, it was made an e-ticket, which I thought was super interesting because like the e-tickets and this ticket system are the more like expensive and you get less of. And it's just weird that I, I don't know how many people would have spent their e-ticket on this uh, but it was an e-ticket. Didn't last very long. I mean, that's what happens when you have to deal with live animals. Uh, you, you know, they're not going to behave. They would be 
bucking people off all the time. The the mules that were pulling the wagons would do the same and flip the wagons. Like it just was a it was a good intention. It's Walt and his live animals, but uh it, it just didn't necessarily work out. I think that the way that they wanted it to. It's up against Dumbo. Dumbo is an icon of Disney parks in general. There's not a single marketing material or uh, commercial that you can come across in which Dumbo doesn't show up like this attraction in any of the parks that it exists. It's just one of those things that people absolutely love. And I didn't know this and I was surprised to read it, but like those aren't all supposed to be Dumbo. It's like this is supposed to be representative of the pink elephants on parade, like just a bunch of like elephants having existed during his alcohol fueled dream. Like I read this on like the D23 website. I was like, this is insane. What? How? How did we not know this? And I have a feeling that that was the original intention. And then they just leaned into this is now Dumbo because the elephants all look like Dumbo. They have the hat. Um, and I think now it's just like this is you're all riding on Dumbo. <laughs> I, I reject that. I, I reject that. I am now going to picture us riding drunk elephants uh, every time I ride Dumbo. Now. Like the attraction just went from like a four to a nine for me. Well, then you're welcome. You're very welcome. Yeah, just uh, get get your hurricane on blue. Uh, blue Bayou yep. or go yep. to Oga's and then get on Dumbo. <laughs> And then you'll have that true, true Dumbo the Flying Elephant experience. Uh, it was originally, it didn't have, so currently it has Timothy in the middle kind of like conducting this this thing, this event that's taking place, which apparently is a drunk Is he dream. drunk too? Yeah, <laughs> yeah like just, he was drunk just in turned, Pink Elephant. Just orchestrating it. <laughs> 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 so originally it didn't have it. So he was off drunk somewhere else sleeping in the tree. Um, and that was added a few years later. Uh, and the the elephants themselves, their ears were supposed to flap like they were flying, uh, but the ears like never worked. So they just abandoned oh. that idea. But when it first opened, they were supposed to flap. And apparently huh. uh, you can see it in some of the Disneyland specials when they show Dumbo. I didn't I wasn't able to find it because I also didn't look it up. But um, apparently you, you can see like at least one like flap its ears, uh, which is a fun thing that maybe they should bring back. Um, yeah. So this thing, what this attraction used to be, uh, over where like the red rose tavern, the big thunder trail is currently like it used yeah. to be there because there was no trail going into Frontierland, And so when they renovated Fantasyland, they moved Dumbo to where its current spot is next to like that, that's uh Casey junior Q. And then made the trail to connect the shortcut to connect to Frontierland. Um, so I, I I thought that was interesting because it feels like it originally was tucked into a corner of Fantasyland, and now it's very much like of that that it's still in the corner, but it's like of the the aesthetic of the the Casey Junior train uh, with uh, Dumbo, much like the Mad Tea Party is next to Alice. It's it's a way nicer way to kind of synergize that corner. Fantasyland is just crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Like, like the amount of attractions in such a small area. Yeah. It's just absolutely... And, like, the, they're not attractions people don't want to ride, you know? Oh, like, yeah. The, 
And that was one thing I noticed when we were at the parks is it was like three o'clock in fantasy land and we're just like walking. Yeah. Like if any other time in the history of this park at three o'clock in fantasy land, you're screwed. Yeah. You are not moving. You are in a giant crowd of people. So when comparing these two, I don't go on Dumbo really ever, um, but I like it being there. I because I, I think it adds to that area, and I know that it's definitely a ride that like families want to go on. They want to have that picture uh, of and and make the memory of going on Dumbo because it has become such an icon of the park. And I would have been so afraid of the mules. Like I, you would not catch me trying to ride one of these mules. I would refuse if my family wanted to go on them. It's just not something that I would be interested in doing. I like how authentic to like the Frontierland experience it is. Um, but obviously, it causes a lot of issues. I don't know that it's very ethical to have all of these mules and being ridden by f- people all day long. Um, it just didn't work out. And I'm glad that they kind of, you know, went to the the train and that aspect of Frontierland these days with Big Thunder and um, even with the mine train uh, before that. So I'm going to go with Dumbo the Flying Elephant to move on here. When I think of 1955 Disneyland, I think of failed attractions, and I also think of Frontierland. Yeah, I don't know why that is the, the. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like it is the one area. Like, yes, it's incredibly annoying that like Tomorrowland, like you said, will never be, uh, like with the times. But Frontierland, it's like it's the opposite problem. It's mm-hmm. like this. Today, it is a remnant of this now abandoned idea that we had where we romanticize everything Western. Yeah. We just don't do that anymore. I mean, little kids don't play cowboy. Right. Uh, They play Marvel (laughs) and they play, you know, Star Wars, whatever. (laughs) Um, It's just so interesting to think that maybe Frontierland in 1955 was more of a draw than Tomorrowland, more mm, of a draw yeah. even maybe than Fantasyland, um, because people loved pack mules, they love <laughs> cowboys, they love the Grand Canyon, they love great Davy Crockett. Like, yeah, this Westerns was huge. were huge. It was huge. it was huge. So, like, it's hard for me to go with Dumbo here because you've got a spinner in. King Arthur's Carousel. You've got a spinner in the Mad Tea Party. And this this Pack Mules experience is a real experience. This is something that people used to go to the Grand Canyon to do. Yeah. Uh, the people the, driving to Mexico, Arizona, Utah, whatever, to do this. And they could do it in Disneyland. I think, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, it, it had a lot of lawsuits associated with it, like people getting thrown off. Mm-hmm. Uh, which we, we learned in our People versus Disneyland book. I'm having a hard time making a case for Dumbo. <laughs> I love I love the fact that like it's drunk Dumbo and I, I will never see the attraction the same way again. Uh, but for me, honestly, it's the pack mules. All right. Why do you do this? <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so Dumbo, honestly, besides the castle, the other attraction that's in every... Disneyland and any, you know, resort that has Dumbo, it's going to have Dumbo in it, you know? 
Yeah. Um, it's so, it's so iconic, um, to the Disneyland franchise franchise. You know, like Kyle said, uh, Disneyland, Disneyland was all about live animals for a while. I mean, I'm still not over when we did the parades bracket and we talked about the freaking bear at the yes, yeah. parade or whatever. Circus yeah. fantasy. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, no, no. I think there were multiple bears. Fantasy on fantasy on parade. It wasn't even yeah, an animal themed parade. They were like, let's just throw a no. bear in here. No, it was, I think he was with with Pinocchio and Geppetto like why there's no bear in that movie um but anyway so it's not shocking that they had pack mules there because they had wild animals in the circus parade and whatever I don't know like I'm I'm from I'm from Hollister where it's very country my family's very agricultural country oriented and um riding a horse or a mule isn't a big deal to me in fact we had a pet mule for 35 40 years however long he lasted wow his name was donk like donk the donkey um super (laughs) creative um and my friends who were from more like suburban or like moved from san jose to hollister like those hollister friends they would come over and think it was a unicorn on the hill because they don't know what wild animals are right um so but so that makes me understand that if it was 1955 Disney, if they were like, you know, more um, urban or suburban people coming into Disney, they would definitely wait in line to ride a mule. Um, but they, it's just a huge liability. I mean, it, that would never stand today. I mean, you know, having the horse drawn trolley down main street is great. I love walking up and looking at his cast member name tag so I can say hi to the horse, his name, but um, we don't need to ride mules in Disneyland. So it, it's Dumbo. It's obviously Dumbo. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Let's move on to the next matchup. It's number three, Disneyland Railroad versus number 14, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit. This matchup makes me so sad because <laughs> I wish I could advance both of these. Uh, Disneyland Railroad, this is, I mean, this is where the idea began. The, the original concept of, uh, I think it was called like Lakeside Park or Riverside Park, like the, the original concept for Disneyland, very small. And the primary attraction was uh, a railroad, a model railroad train that would take guests around this area. It's going to be up near Glendale or Burbank where the Disney studios are. Mickey Mouse Park. Mickey Mouse Park, that's right. And and so like this is this is it. <laughs> it's railroads, you know? So yeah. Walt, as we know, is super into railroads. I mean, it's the first thing you see when you enter Disneyland Park railroad station and you know, hopefully a railroad train at the station, Main Street Station. Like I said, I love waving at people when I'm, you know, tooting around <laughs> the park and People are standing in line for Haunted Mansion or whatever. I'm just like, smile and wave, boys. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Obviously, uh, we should point out that the Primeval World diorama was not added until much later. Right. Obviously, Splash Mountain was not a thing back then. So, like, there was no little peek inside to see the, uh, the boat. can't remember what it's called. Zippity Lady, the name of the boat, I think. Uh, Toontown was not a thing, so there was no Toontown station. Small World know, wasn't like, a thing. 
So you didn't yeah. go through Small World. So like I, I'm trying to think about it. I'm like, what did you what did you even <laughs> see on the Disneyland Railroad? You, you, you went know? through the massive Frontierland, and you got to see the the mules and the and later on the mine train. And at one point, you had the um the Viewliner train, the mini Viewliner that ran parallel for part of the the trip. Right. Like there there were right. some things that just don't exist now. But it's kind of like to test this point of what she enjoys with these transport rides, like getting to see a lot of something while you're riding on these. I don't think that you would have been able to see more of just the general park than that 1955 railroad because there wasn't right, anything right. to see or go through. You just like got to survey your land, you know? And and like we said with Jungle Cruise, like the foliage was not fully grown. So you could probably be in like what is now New Orleans Square and like see all the way across to Tomorrowland. Like the right. uh, unobstructed. So it's interesting to kind of think about uh, what it is today and what it must have been like back then to to ride around. And I'm sure the the idea of it being a train was probably much more apparent throughout the attraction. You know, it's it's very easy to get distracted by by seeing all of the things today. Um, I think that like, oh, I'm on a train, baby, let's go, was like, was way more of a thing in 1955. <laughs> Obviously, like tons of images of Walt, like conducting the train. You've got the Lily Bell uh, caboose car that is a huge part of Disney history. Uh, you know, when, when you think of Disneyland, you think of Walt. Railroads are one of the top three things that comes to mind, other than animation and racism. So, uh, twenty thousand leagues under the sea. This this exhibit opened with the park in nineteen fifty five, and 20,000 Leagues came out in 1954. So this was like a new movie. Obviously, the, the Jules Verne novel, had people knew it, so it yep. wasn't entirely new. And it's so interesting to think about the X Games experience <laughs> and how like that is a perfect representation like of the times of when that park opened and like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea might be the same thing for Disneyland. Like, it's people exactly just, it. They were just really juiced on 20,000 leagues back then, you know? They were just they were just loving Jules Verne and this was one of the most popular attractions in the park. It was basically just a, a walk around of the in- interior of the Nautilus and you saw Captain Nemo- Nemo's organ and you saw a little like a giant squid puppet and it was narrated by our boy Thor Ravenscroft. <laughs> and it had uh, so much appeal that it stood for 11 years in yeah. Disneyland and it came back in 1994 with the opening of Disneyland Paris. They did one there as well, which I have been on slash walkthrough and I can attest that it is dope, especially <laughs> if you're like me and you are a big 20,000 leagues under the sea fan. Right. I mean, I'm super into it. I'm super into the 20,000 leagues thing. Uh, I think that the railroad is like quintessential Disney parks as a whole, but I, I think I'm going bias on this one and I'm going 20,000 leagues under the sea uh, just because I like the, the exhibit aspect of it and how like not all Disneyland is rides. A lot of it is just like some cool stuff to look at. And especially back in 1955. Sure. Um, I'm going to go with the railroad because I think it truly is the better attraction. And the, the history of the exhibit is interesting because basically they just had space to fill. And so they needed to put something in Tomorrowland as they were not ready to open it. 
And so this quote comes from D23. It says, when Walt Disney was rushed to finish Disneyland on time, he fell behind on Tomorrowland. So since the movie 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was so successful, he decided to display the original sets there. The stopgap attraction turned out to be one of the more popular ones at Disneyland. So it remained there for 11 years. So it was super popular because I don't know that these exhibits had been done before, right? Like you, when can you see movie sets in public? Like, I don't, I don't know the history of these like displays, the the displays of sets. The, when I was a tour guide at Warner Brothers, people used to lose it when we would show them the replica of the Central Perk set from Friends. Right. Like their jaws would drop, their faces would light up. Like this is a cool experience. And yeah. anyone who says IP-based <laughs> attractions are not as good as like original ideas, show 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. People have been, been into happening. it since literally the park opened. It's happened since day one. Um, but since it's, it was kind of a rushed thing, uh, since the, the railroad has so much history and is so important to the park itself, the fact that it's the first thing that you see that you can hear throughout the park that will never ever go away they've shown that because when they built galaxy's edge they had to reroute the train slightly so that this is a, a staple of this park that has stood the test of time uh 20, leagues under the sea exhibit uh, is awesome that they did it but it was meant to be temporary while they figured out the rest of the land so i'm going to go with the disneyland railroad uh which means Tess is breaking this tie gee i wonder <laughs> what i'm gonna pick a 360 tour of the park or a walkthrough of a movie that I've seen like once. That's not enough times, Tess. Watch it more. Watch it more. <laughs> well, because of Disney Plus, I can, but uh, no, it's the railroad. Let's move on to our final matchup. It's the number six, Rocket to the Moon versus number 11, Snow White and Her Adventures. Uh, Snow White has seen so many iterations <laughs> and that poor ride. Uh, First being that uh, people didn't understand that they were supposed to be Snow White going through the adventure. So they were like, why, where, why don't we ever see Snow White? There were seven witch figures in this original iteration of the attraction. And by figures, I mean like the two-dimensional um, boards, essentially, carved out boards of, of the witch. Uh, and no Snow White. And there was one scene of the dwarfs. But otherwise, it was just like, you going on this absolutely terrifying adventure through not even the movie. You're just kind of escaping the witch the entire time, <laughs> which I thought is, is I get it. I get why people were like, what was that? <laughs> That's not Snow White. I haven't seen that one, but I kind of liked it. Uh, there is a part in it in which you get trapped in the witch's castle in this first iteration, and you're going past these skeletons that are moaning go back and i just like how terrifying <laughs> like i want to see this and be on it so bad um, <laughs> the the original attraction had a sign that had the witch on it snow white and her scary adventures with the witch on the sign and that was meant to imply that this is a scary ride and it just went over people's heads and they changed it they changed it to snow white scary adventures uh it's now snow white and the enchanted wish uh, but it started out as this very, very scary uh, ride, which I wish I had been able to enjoy. It's going up against Rocket to the Moon, which was an attraction that is where the Pizza Planet restaurant is 
currently over on that side of the park um, before Space Mountain got there, obviously, because this is 1955, opened up July 22nd, a few days after the park did. And this was an attraction in which you sat in the circular um, theater and in the middle of the theater on the ground was this massive screen. And then up in the roof was a screen. And essentially, you were supposed to be taking off from Disneyland and going to the moon uh, in which you would also learn some things about the moon and and the future of space travel and stuff. Because in the mid-century, people were hyped about space. And they were were gearing up to send people to the moon in the very near future. Uh, And so people just wanted to to go and they, they made it happen. Um, I'm under the impression that this is just a theater, right? There, there is no movement involved in this at all. It's just the screen, like the visual illusion, which could have been enough in 1955, right? Like that, maybe you do get that sense of movement by just seeing the screens and not having to be in a simulator like Star Tours, but in current day, like just sitting in one of those, like looking up and down as if like you're moving without feeling the movement would obviously not not be great for today's times they changed the name to flight to the moon instead of rocket to the moon in 1967 because neil armstrong landed on the moon so now it's not even a rocket now we're taking flights there as if like that's the next thing neil did it on the rocket so the next thing is we're going to be able to have straight up flights to get you there and that's how they tried to battle this tomorrow that they can never actually achieve um so yeah uh, it changed again in 1992 to Mission to Mars because we're over being about the moon because Mars was the next hot thing. And then in 1998, it closed for Red Rockets, Pizza Port, which is now Pizza Planet. Little history there for you. Uh, in this matchup, though, Rockets to the Moon, Quintessential, Disneyland 1.0, Snow White being a dark ride that they are trying to make survive just goes to show how much these dark ride experiences are the bread and butter of Disneyland. And I think that it's way more enjoyable than sitting in the theater, going to the moon at the time, probably exhilarating. But at the same time, I would also really want to be scared (laughs) in Snow White's adventure. I just, I wanted to be scared in that so bad. Uh, I, I just like that a lot better than the idea. I've never really been into space travel, never been fascinated with the idea of it. Um, so even in that, my 1955 mind, I think I'd probably go with Snow White's Adventure, which I'm going to do today as well. So like, wh- what are our thoughts on, on Red Rockets, Pizza Port and, and Pizza Planet? Never eaten there. Tess? Uh, it's somewhere I go to get ice water. That's, that's about it. So we, that used to be our spot. We used to eat there every time we went to Disneyland. Oh, wow. And in the early 2000s, it hit different, but somewhere, <laughs> somewhere around like 2008 or nine, it started getting exponentially worse with each visit. And now it's just like garbage food. Yeah. So that's really sad to, to think that this rock to the moon, like that's, that's what the space is now. It's just garbage food. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's important to point out the role that the TWA rocket played in Tomorrowland, uh, the the like actual scientific word is weenie for an object that you see from a distance that you want to walk towards. Right. 
And so this TWA rocket was a huge weenie and really like drew people through Tomorrowland in 1955. There's something really cool to look at. You know, first you first you look at the clock of the world, which was dope. (laughs) And then you were like, oh, wait, there's another thing I want to go see. Like, let's go check that out. I I really am interested to see how far all of these dark rides go because they yeah. all advanced here. And I really wish I could make a good case for, you know, our last defunct attraction left on this bracket. But I mean, if if I went in a time machine back in 1955, I would absolutely go to the Aluminum Hall of Fame. <laughs> I would absolutely check out the Tomorrowland boats. Heck, I'd go Snapchat Clock of the World. <laughs> Rocket to the Moon looks so stupid to me. Like, I just, I don't see the value whatsoever in this attraction. So, I, I'm going with Snow White here. I, I don't know why Rocket to the Moon is number six. That feels really high. But like I said, it's like, it. the rocket ship remains. You know, and like the space sort of remains. And so, like, sure. if there was a defunct... Uh, original attraction that that is you can still kind of see the scars it's it's this one so maybe it's just one people think about a lot when they think about like early days original disney so snow white's moving on tess how do you feel about that love scary trees so i'm (laughs) all for it all right well that brings us to the end of this episode and with an elite eight so the matchups are looking like the number one jungle cruise versus the number eight mark twain riverboat down the brackets, number 13, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride versus the number five, King Arthur's Carousel. Across the brackets, the number two, Peter Pan's Flight versus the number seven, Dumbo the Flying Elephant. And rounding out the Elite Eight, it is the number three, Disneyland Railroad versus the number 11, Snow White and her adventures. Tess, thank you so much for being on this episode and breaking some ties. We look forward to having you on next time in which we're going to have to actually get down to it with all of these dark rides that have advanced through. It's going to be fun. Happy to be here as always. All right, everybody. Well, you know how to reach us. You got something to say about these 1955 Disney original attractions. Oh, we would love to hear from you. You got a bracket idea? You want to be a guest host? Hit us up. Email us at bouncematterspodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Discord. All of those channels are linked in the description of this podcast. Till next time, folks, we hope that this podcast has been a source of joy and inspiration to all the world.